0: Hi, and welcome to The Good Fundraising Podcast, where we bring together nonprofit thought leaders and change makers to talk about what's good in the world of fundraising and what could be better. I'm your host, Alicia Mollenstein. Thanks for joining me today. Today, we continue part two with Karen Kirchhoff and Jennifer Deere of K2D Strategies with our fundraiser AMA. We're going to talk about monthly giving, acquisition spends, and more. Stay tuned. All right, let's see, moving on to channels. This is one probably a lot of people can relate to. My board hates telemarketing, and we haven't been allowed to run a phone campaign in a few years. We had a change in leadership, and now we have a chance. Is it worth trying to get back on the phones now with donors all being home, or is the phone really dead? Well, Alicia, uh, my
1: first fundraising job was as a telefundraiser. Uh, making calls for organizations like Habitat for Humanity and Planned Parenthood, among others. So I still love telemarketing. I still think it's a great channel, even if many kind of consider it the ugly redheaded stepchild of our uh, fundraising channel, Quiver. You know, I think especially now, Folks are home more and they are answering the phone again. So I would suggest that if an organization already had a telemarketing relationships set up and has sort of the proper registration either in place or in progress um, and can sort of easily renew them if, if they've expired, then I think it could be worth getting back up on the phones um, if you haven't been. If you have no history of doing telemarketing, there, there are enough hoops you have to jump through from a state registration perspective, that it may not be worth it. I think a lot of that depends on the size of the program and again, what you're trying to accomplish with telemarketing as a channel. It tends to be particularly effective in upgrading donors, in monthly giving, soliciting and acquiring and converting new monthly donors, but it tends to be less cost-effective for things like renewals. Depending on how long we're all under these, you know, quasi stay-at-home orders, you know, certainly could change over time. But I would, I would encourage folks who have the structure in place to consider getting back up on the phones if you've got the ability to do it right now.
0: That's a good point. And if it's been a couple of years, it's probably worth managing some expectations for what those campaigns are going to return and maybe seeing the phones in a slightly different light than they used to be. They've become, in a lot of ways, more complementary to other efforts than. Yeah being able to fully convert or be your sole source of upgrade. There's still use for them, but it probably has changed. Yeah. Moving on, what part of our revenue should we realistically expect to get from digital efforts? My board thinks we should be all digital all the time, but I don't know if our program could raise that through digital alone. Karen or Jen? Yeah, this is
1: another one where sector is really important. Um, You know, there, there are some sectors who are successfully seeing 10, 15% of their revenue come from digital channels, but there are enough that still very much in growth mode. And it might be, you know, a few, up to five percentage points at most. And, and, you know, so of course that then begs the question, if you're, you know, if if right now you're only raising 10% of revenue from digital channels and you switch to all digital, can you really make up the other 90% just by spending more money on digital channels? And, And I would suggest that you can't, at least not yet. It's just simply too easy to, you know, swipe left to delete an email or to scroll past an ad on Facebook to invest the kind of money that we're talking about to really make up for, you know, revenue that would otherwise not be realized by not spending money on direct mail acquisition, for example. So, you know, while I think everybody should be in digital channels, um, you know, sending email, ideally doing something on Facebook, optimizing your website for site visitors, you know, that kind of stuff. I think walking away from any other channels right now is, is probably a mistake.
0: Yeah, I think that's really difficult for folks that are grappling with losing their in-person events right now, for example, and maybe hoping that they could reinvest that money somewhere and, and see the same return, but might not be able to recoup it through any existing channel all by itself without seriously reshaping that channel. Yeah, we, yeah, we're definitely, we're seeing lots
1: of organizations dabble in virtual events I think the jury is still out on really what that means and how that translates. Uh, at least what I've seen so far, and we're still relatively early into, into this in the grand scheme of things, uh, but what I've seen so far is that virtual events, you might recoup 50 or 60% of what you would have raised at a, a you know a gala or some other type of in-person event. And I just don't see digital channels making up for that. Event, event donors are a very different animal than somebody who gives through digital channels. And I think you really have to understand that and respect where donors are in their relationship with the organization. I think it's be so interesting
0: when we come out of this and we get to see some benchmarks around how different forms and formats of digital events did and which which audiences and sectors were having the most luck with them because it really is um, an uncharted area for most of us. And there's such a lack of information about how they should be performing. All right, next question. I'm with a very small nonprofit that's just a few years old. We got board of prop- approval for our first acquisition spend, yay! And want to test digital ads. Where should we start, and how should we consider distributing our budget on socials? Uh, this one's particularly interesting for me right now because all these articles about Facebook and the perception of Facebook and how unpopular they are becoming with, you know, certainly commercial advertisers pulling their spend. This is timely, whether you're a small organization or not. Alicia, I'm so glad you're mm-hmm. posing
1: this question. Our agency has been dedicated to helping smaller nonprofits, even on a project basis, because we think it's important for those organizations to be able to try and dip their toe in the water, whether it's on direct mail acquisition or, more recently, on digital channels. And we've worked now with a, a number of smaller organizations on creating some structure to see whether or not it makes sense for them to do it. And what we've generally um, advised them and in some cases partnered with them on is to take a relatively small spend, you know, a few thousand dollars and test some ads on Facebook in particular. Facebook is separate from the the boycott that many organizations and companies are participating in now. Facebook is a relatively easy channel to stick your toe in the water on to see whether or not you can make fundraising or lead generation work. You know, the channel is set up to optimize for you. It um, gives you great ability to target audiences. You can Upload existing audiences, whether that's an email file or a direct mail file to target folks that, all, that may already have a relationship with you. So the bar is pretty low in terms of lift from a, a nonprofit perspective um, to take a few thousand dollars and see what you can do. And that information is going to tell you a lot about whether you should be allocating more of your budget towards that spend. Right so you don't necessarily need to make the decision that you're going to spend 25% of your budget on digital advertising. You can take a, you know, as I said, a relatively small amount of money, play with the channel a little bit, see what it does for you and then figure out how to potentially scale it from there. And it's It's in a lot of cases much easier and much quicker to get that information than it might be to do a direct mail acquisition test. And what we're starting to do as well is then take whatever we've learned from, you know, testing ads, for example, creative messaging, you know, issue focus, testing it in the the Facebook channel and then applying it to other channels um, so that it sort of almost serves as an incubator for message and creative testing.
0: I love that idea and that way of thinking because it is a channel where you get a much faster response than most of the other ones that we have traditionally relied on for donor acquisition. I guess the one thing I would add on that as a word of caution or a caveat is because it moves so quickly, once those donors come in, you have to already be prepared for what the next step is. And we don't have the luxury of time that we would with the mail or a longer type of tail campaign on this. Have everything ready from the get-go about what that next communication is going to be or it's a mad scramble.
1: It's true. It's a great point.
0: Jen, do you have anything to add on that?
2: No, I appreciate that. No, I think Karen has
0: said it all. All right, fantastic. Moving on to monthly. What is one thing I could do that would make a big impact on my monthly donor files retention?
2: So, as as a process person, these kind of questions make my soul sing because I think that a lot of times what we would call the the non sexy part of monthly giving or monthly giving programs is that back end, and I think the single biggest thing that you can do to impact your monthly donor file retention is to work with a processor that, that has access to the updater programs that are used by the four major credit card companies. So Visa, MasterCard, American Express, and Discover all offer these updater services that basically will provide the processor with a new card number if the donor decides that they need a new card or that you know their card has expired. It provides them with new expire dates, basically allowing you to continue processing even if Uh, you know, typically an expired credit card number or or an expired date has passed would would cause the card to go delinquent. So I think that that number one, we have seen such great success in that really inching up retention by, you know, 5%, 10%, even more for some organizations. So that would be our our first bit of advice on that. I think also taking a look at those back end processes and making sure that you have a really good delinquent recapture plan. You actually have a plan, and this is where those business rules come into place. You know, how many times are you trying the credit cards? At what point do you contact the donor? How are you contacting the donor? You know, trying to get that information uh, so that you can get them back on the file. So I think a lot of all of that backend kind of not interesting to, to most people, very interesting to me is really the best way to, to affect that metric for your file.
0: I think DevOps is one of the single biggest factors in the success or failure of monthly donors. And the fact that they cost a little bit more makes it all the more important that you have those things in place and you have someone who's responsible for monitoring them on a regular Absolutely. basis to make sure that it's working. And just to tack onto that recapture point, I mean, recapture is so important. You have to remind people why they're so important to you when they do laps. You can't just assume that everyone is paying attention and it's a choice that they've made to fall off your file. More often than not, people just forget because life is busy and they're more than happy to come back on, but nonprofits actually have to make the effort of getting out in touch with them early and often. Absolutely. Staying on the topic of sustainers, how often is too often to ask a sustainer to upgrade? We've never done it, and my donor services team is really
2: against the idea. That is also a great question. I think that sometimes, quite honestly, the back end for processing an upgrade can be difficult. So even just the process of getting the upgrade into the system. But if that's not what, you know, causing the donor services team to to grumble, there's really no reason to not ask for an upgrade at least once a year. I think that it could be a year-end ask, or if you have an annual fund campaign, but there's definitely no reason to, to not ask it somebody to upgrade. And truly, I think that you can ask them to upgrade more than once a year if you really have a compelling or urgent reason, uh, you know, something new that's come out, breaking news, things like that, that you can reach out to these donors and say, you are so valuable to us, we we have this new challenge, and we really need additional support. So I think if you're authentic in that way, and you provide them with a really compelling reason, there's no reason not to ask.
0: You know, on that breaking news subject, Jen, just to stick with that for a second. If you already have a monthly file and say now you're one of the organizations that's dealing with COVID, or would it be better to go out to those monthly donors with an upgrade ask or ask them for a one-time gift? What do you think?
2: Ooh, an either or. Um, Yeah, that's that's a difficult question to answer. Um, I think that, and Karen, I'll, I'll let you weigh in too. We can vote on this. I would rather ask for the one-time gift, if unless you're set up kind of for that upgrade ask, but in just kind of getting a, a quick influx of donations to really speak to the donor file, let them know what you're doing, that you're on the ground. That would probably be, be the way I would go. But Karen, I don't know if you would.
1: I love it when we disagree, Jen. <laughs> I know it's so great. <laughs> I, I think I would want to go after the upgrade, and you know, of course, the the caveat to that is, you know, Jen talked about the sort of potential larger influx of more immediate cash, and if that's critical to the organization's ability to provide direct service or you know accomplish whatever is specific to that breaking news event, then you know, then that may be the better decision. I like the long game because. Asking donors to upgrade is likely going to have longer term, better longer term value to the organization and increasing their investment in your work probably pays out in some other ways as well down the road. Um, I think everybody probably knows that monthly donors are among the best targets for planned giving asks. And if the the larger gift that they're making seems to also be an indicator of a a greater passion and a greater uh, likelihood that they would leave a legacy gift to the organization. So I'm going to go, I'm going to vote for uh, upgrade.
2: And Karen, I, I, I'd be curious to get your opinion. Do you think that matters what what the size of your sustainer file is? If you're, you know, working with a, a small sustainer file versus a, a very large sustainer file, do you think that that would change your opinion on which way to go? I don't know
1: that it would. You know, I think a, I think a smaller, if if it's a smaller sustainer file, you likely have a, a a slightly more intimate relationship with monthly donors, and you know, making a direct ask to them to increase from. You know say a twenty five dollar a month sustainer to a thirty five or a fifty dollar month sustainer is going to provide the organization with greater longer term stability coming from those monthly donors versus you know a single gift of a hundred dollars or two hundred and fifty dollars or something like that
0: it's also one of those moments when when there is a crisis point that organizations wrestle with when they have acquisition campaigns going after donors for a one time gift to bring them on or bring them on as monthly and you know I think we've we've seen enough results out there. Uh, across groups to see some groups have a lot of success with that and and some don't, uh, but I think if you have the opportunity to at least try to test in those emergency moments, these two options of one-time versus upgrade for your existing and for newly acquired donors, bringing them on as one-time or monthly, and then monitoring all the things we just talked about, their retention, their 12-month value, you can begin to see what's the best course of action for the next time disaster strikes, because it probably will. Yeah, great point. So, last question on sustainers: Is it better to get more low-dollar donors as sustainers and then upgrade them, or to get fewer higher-dollar sustainers?
2: That is a that's a great question. Um, I think that upgrading sustainers is a notoriously difficult task. So, you you can't go into trying to acquire low-dollar sustainers thinking that you're you're going to eventually upgrade them to be higher higher-dollar sustainers. But I think if you had to choose a path. Getting more low low dollar sustainers because the response rate or the conversion rate for a lower dollar sustainer is certainly going to be higher than a, a higher dollar sustainer you can eventually increase the value of these donors by asking for additional gifts. And and we definitely recommend that for sustainers and and mid-level, any of these high value programs, these donors that are really connected to your organization, that you do keep them in a somewhat traditional mail stream or communication stream and and you keep talking to them. So there is an opportunity for these donors, these lower dollar sustainers to give additional gifts throughout the year and and thereby kind of improve their value dramatically. Uh, And of course, this you know, highly engaged group of donors, this highly committed group of donors is your best planned giving prospect. So having a larger pool of those donors can, can never a Great hurt. point on the planned giving potential
0: for that audience. Karen, do you have anything to add on this one? No argument for me. Jen and I are in agreement. <laughs> That's great. The one thing I'd add on it is, you know, when you're looking at sustainers, I think you definitely have to take channel into account. And I think it's easy for us to lump sustainers into one big bucket and not look for those differences. But when you dig a little deeper and you start to look at the retention on sustainers, you might see big differences in pledge amount and retention depending on their channel. And so it's worth digging a little deeper on that to see if you need to make a different ask in a different Mm -hmm. channel because a $40 sustainer might be amazing coming from digital and they might have terrible retention if they came from your canvassing program. So there's nuances within that too. Take, it, take into consideration once you have enough to really do a bit more of a diagnosis. Okay, final question for you both. I have a small file. What kind of segmentation can I do that will make an impact?
2: We have seen a lot of really uh, innovative segmentation, if you will, work across small and large files. And, and what, we're, what we've been doing is taking a look at groups of donors in a different way. Uh, traditionally, segmentation is going to be done by RFM, but I, we've been looking at donors and, and classifying them in different groups, things like appeal responsive versus renewal responsive or digital only, speaking to donors in that way and uh, crafting their communication stream in that way. You know, are they premium donors? Are they match responsive? Have If they've given to calendars before in the in the past, mention that to them in their letter. Hey, we know you love the calendar. Uh, but talking to your donors as though you know them in these kind of different innovative segments. We've seen a lot of real success in moving the needle on response rate and average gift.
0: Karen, anything to add?
1: Yeah, there's lots of these little data points in your file that that often can be, you know, helpful in really solidifying the relationship between the donor and the organization. And I think just having a curious mind about that and poking around, seeing what, you know, has somebody on an ask string on a reply device checked other. And given you an other amount, that person probably has a different level of passion for your organization than the person who, you know, generically chooses the first because that's what they've always done. Right. So some of those little tidbits can be really impactful. And the key at the at the sort of front end, if you will, is to capture as much information as you can about your donors and then find the time or make the time to uh, to do some of that investigation and really figure out how you can encourage those folks to strengthen their relationship with the, the organization and ultimately increase their the organization's share of wallet, quote unquote, from, um, from that donor, from that constituent.
0: Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Jen, so much for answering these questions. This was really fun, our first time with two guests, and I hope that we got to cover a lot of people's questions. Um, really hope that we get to do this again. So thank you both so much. Yeah, thanks for having us.
2: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: Thanks again to Karen and Jen for joining me for our very first AMA. If you have an idea for the show, please drop me an email at hello at goodfundraising.net. If you enjoyed the episode today, consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find show notes for this episode and all of our episodes at goodfundraising.net slash podcast. Thanks again for joining me today. Until next time, remember to be nice and do good.